there are people that God has brought into my life that have been formational and foundational. And, uh, and little by little, as the Lord has allowed, I've wanted to expose them to you or you to them. And the grace of God in them to you. And that's been happening with David Hughes and Noel Cookman. Um, let's just thank God for these, these guys, uh, their ministry to us. And, and for those of you who've heard this story before, just bear with me, but there may be a few that hadn't. Um, as I introduce our speaker this morning, uh, I, I started in ministry when I was 12. Uh, leading worship and be involved in youth groups and that kind of thing. And I grew up in the singer-songwriter era where it was just expected if you played guitar, you wrote songs. So I wrote songs, and and um, the Lord opened up many opportunities and, and uh, some cool things. And I helped plant some churches doing the worship, and I reached a point like so many have of burnout and working with pastors sometimes is not the easiest thing. Some of them can you know, kill you. Uh, um, some are kinder than others. And um, I was at a point where my spiritual life was was just kind of down the tubes. But I was faking it, you know, fake it till you make it. And um, and I was also just tired of ministry. The one thing I desired from the the day I received Jesus, September 28, 1974, I stood up from my knees praying the sinner's prayer in my bedroom and said, I'm going to be a preacher. Had no idea what that meant. I didn't play guitar yet or anything, but that's, and that's all I wanted. That's all I ever wanted. I put my eggs in one basket, only to find out I didn't like that basket <laughs> after a while. And um, was deeply, deeply discouraged, ready to just give it up. And a friend, Mark Shiver, as many of you know, put a, gave me a tape. Like, the last thing I wanted to listen to was another tape. <laughs> and um, so it just sat in my car and didn't melt for about a year. Christmas Eve, driving from Pittsburgh to Wilmington, Margie and Gracie had already rode the train or flown here or something. They got here somehow ahead of me, and I had to do the Christmas Eve service and then <laughs> got in my car to drive so I could be with my family for Christmas. And it just all hit me. I was bored. You know, that's a long drive. Anyone ever been on the Pennsylvania Turnpike? <laughs> the most exciting thing about that are the potholes, you know? <laughs> and they're still there. I don't think they put any money into that highway. They sure take a lot. I know that. But anyway, I digress. Out of sheer boredom, I put in that tape that sat in my car. And it was this our speaker this morning, James Barron. This is 18 years ago. And he started, the, what really caught my attention was, he was the, the message was 10 things that are commonly taught in church that are not true or that are false. And and so I thought, this is interesting. And then he got to the whole thing about 1 John 1, 9, keeping your sins confessed and up to date and all this, and how that is taught, un, uh, it's taught out of context in a lot of things. Where, and um, 
I describe it as being on a hamster wheel. Going and going and going and going and falling off and get back on. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Get back on. And that will wear you out. And that, I heard this, this message and I thought, I sure wish that was true. I sure, it's too good to be true, but I would, wouldn't it be nice if it was? And, um, but something started, like the, like a crack in the old icy heart. <laughs> and, uh, and the warmth of the love of God that's unconditional began to flood in. And James was kind enough to correspond with me and answer all my crazy questions. What about this? What about this? Well, if this is true, what about this? And he did it with such love. I was won over by love. And it is my great, wonderful privilege to introduce him this morning and just allow the grace of God in him to get all over you. So would you give a warm, loving welcome to James Barron. Thank you so much. So good to be here. Uh, we've had a good time. It's been really good. Um, if you weren't able to come to Friday or Saturday's uh, sessions, I really want to encourage you to get a CD or a copy of the of the teachings. I know it will really, really bless you. Um, well, I want to share a few thoughts this morning about uh, something that's so important that we understand concerning what Jesus did um, so that we can really get a revelation of the new creation and who we really are. Um, It's one of the keys, I believe, to seeing that you really are new. So I want to kind of talk about those things this morning. Um, We mentioned this briefly yesterday, but um, keep in mind, saints, that when Jesus came, He came to open a door to another reality. Jesus said, I am the door. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what he was saying was that I am the way or the door. I am the truth or the reality behind that door. And I am the life that you seek in that reality. It's an awesome, awesome thing Jesus has done and has come to mankind and, and accomplished everything that necessary to make this happen. The, Jesus said this. He said that you cannot see the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God unless you are born of the spirit. Now, one of the most profound things Jesus ever said is that which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is one of the most profound statements ever made on the earth. This is a very powerful, powerful truth. Basically, what Jesus is saying is that all of flesh, all of mankind must be replaced to see what God has done and see God. 
that which is must die so that something new may be raised. And I want to develop what that means in, in other ways. But the thing that is so powerful is that he, he is the door and he is the place. We go through him into another reality as believers. And Jesus said we can only see this kingdom, this reality. And that's what the kingdom of heaven really is. It's another reality. We can see this kingdom only if we're born of the spirit, which means he wants us to see it more and more. Once we are born of the spirit, he wants us to step, step into it, so to speak, and walk around in it and, and, and enjoy this, this other reality. Now, what am I talking about? What, is, what am I? This sounds like too mystical. First of all, let me tell you this. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to get used to the mystical. Jesus said to a group of followers, he said, if you eat my flesh, only if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, can you have life? He says, my words are spirit and they are life. And he was referring to his death. He was, he was referring to what he would do in his death. He said, unless you eat of this and understand this, you cannot have life. And they said, how can we eat your flesh and drink your blood? And many walked away from him and didn't follow him anymore because they said, this is a hard saying. You see, he was talking very mystical. His words are spirit and they are life. If you're offended by the mystical or the spiritual that's a fleshly thing, and, and you need to recognize that. You need to recognize that, hey, wait, wait, wait. I should not be offended by the spiritual. So, see what I'm saying? It's like we need to see that the Christian life is not a book of principles so that we can learn the principles and apply them to our lives. That's not the Christian life. Jesus didn't come to... Give us a book so we could learn what is right and wrong and so we can apply those principles and have a successful life. That's not the Christian life. And if you think that's the Christian life, if you think the Christian life is, is really all about just these practical truths that I can apply in my life and be a better person, you will be offended when I say he is the door that step, you can step into another reality and experience the Father and walk in a way where you see the unseen. You're going to go like, what? And yet that's exactly what Paul said. Paul said, look, not on the scene, but look at the unseen. For the scene is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. See, I think a lot of, a lot of uh, people have this view of Jesus and a view of, of Christianity that is just not like Jesus at all. And so when you hear the real Jesus, when you hear the real call to this, this, this life in the spirit, it's like weird, but it's not weird. It's like it's God. Many times we worship the book and not the God of the book. You know, Jesus said, you search these scriptures and you think in these scriptures you have life. But they speak of me. And you won't come to me that you might have life. God does not want us to have, a fe have fellowship with a book. 
the book is awesome because the book is all about him. But the book is a word, is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet, which implies it takes us to him. This is not the end. This is just the means. But many believers have made the book the end. And they get along with the, the book and they read the book. And sometimes they have little breakthroughs into the, the God of the book. They'll have some few breakthroughs and, wow, God showed me this. And that's awesome. But listen, he wants us to go beyond the book to a spiritual reality of fellowship with him that is off the charts in another realm called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven does not come like men think, Jesus said. It doesn't come like men think. It shall be within you, Jesus said. A realm within you. Paul said, the kingdom of heaven is righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. So the realm is now in the believer within the spirit. The life of Christ himself is within us. And so we no longer are looking to a book for principles to live by, but we're looking into these scriptures to see him. It's awesome. And that's why the, that's how the scriptures come alive and are powerful because it's a revelation of him. Okay. Let's look at I want to look at um let's turn to Romans chapter 7, please. Romans 7. You know, it was mentioned earlier yesterday that uh, on the road to Emmaus, those two disciples who were asking, you know, they were wondering what what happened. You know, the Messiah died and we thought he was going to be the Messiah and what happened. And, and Jesus talked to them and the scripture says that Jesus opened the scriptures to them. And beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he revealed himself to them. And that's the three divisions, by the way, of the Hebrew Bible. If you go to a, a Jewish store and buy just Jewish books and buy a Jewish Bible, which will not have a New Testament in it, you'll look at the contents of a Jewish Bible. It'll say Moses, the law of Moses, first five books. Then it'll say chapter two heading prophets, which will have all the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. Then it'll say um, the Psalms. There's a third division in the contents and under Psalms is all the minor prophets and the Proverbs and so forth. So when Jesus said Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, he wasn't just he was he was talking about the entire Old Testament. It's awesome. He's not talking about just those three things. Those are the three headings of the entire from Genesis to Malachi, the whole thing. And it says that as he walked with them, he began to open the scriptures to them and talk to them about Noah and the ark. Probably began with the with the garden, the two trees in the garden, what they mean, what they symbolize. And Noah, Abraham, Isaac, sacrifice, Jacob, 
you know, all these things he began to share. And and Israel's exodus through from from Egypt. Anyway, so later it says that their hearts were strangely warmed as he opened the scriptures to them. This is as we've been talking about the pop ups. David mentioned the pop ups. This is so important that we see by the spirit, the revelation of Christ in the scriptures, because it reinforces what the spirit is teaching about what Jesus did. And it will cause us to be ushered in, so to speak, into this other reality. More powerfully than ever before. Um, Okay, let's look at Romans chapter seven. Okay, what I want to share briefly this morning is is that it's really important as we walk this life out in Christ that we see something that is that God did um, that is is, it's uh, it's a revelation. And it is this. We have to see that God literally circumcised us in this new covenant. Now, remember the Abrahamic covenant? The, the, the one thing you had to do to be in the Abrahamic covenant was to be circumcised. The scripture says that if you're circumcised, you're in the covenant. If you're not circumcised, you're not in the covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, which was a foreshadowing of the covenant of grace and faith that would come through Christ, was a covenant that had that one condition, circumcision. There was no moral condition of being a good person. This was way before the law. And God basically said, this covenant is entered into by circumcision, not by doing good and abstaining from evil. had nothing to do with morality. It was circumcision. Why did God do that? Why did he make a covenant that had nothing to do with behavior, but all it had to do with was a physical act of circumcision to be in the covenant. And the females were in the covenant because they were joined to the males. The, the circumcision of the male became the circumcision for the female because as a married couple, the circumcision of the male counted for the female, which is also a picture of Christ, obviously, Christ in the church. Okay, so what God did in the new covenant, he fulfilled what circumcision is all about, the real meaning of circumcision. The scripture says in Colossians that we have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ by his death on the cross. We have been circumcised by the hand of God, by the work of Christ on the cross. What does that mean? Colossians says that when you put, when you put your faith in Jesus, that the hand of God actually cuts away the body of your flesh from your inner man. The hand of God cuts away your outer man from your inner man. This is Paul. This is Paul got a revelation. We're going to read it in a minute. Paul got a revelation of this. And where and where he cut was very important. He cut between your invisible inner man and your physical body, your outer man. Now, your inner man is composed of spirit and soul, spirit and soul, spirit and soul are distinguishable. But they are inseparable. They're distinguishable. They're not the same thing, but they are inseparable. Most a lot of teaching out there says that that your your spirit is saved. Your soul is being saved and your body will be saved. Okay, that's most of the teaching out there. That's wrong. 
basically you're saying the finished work of Christ took care of about a third of our problem. That's not, that's not really that impressive. And he's working on the, the soul area, and then one day we'll get the body immortal. Well, the body part is correct. We, we, we are waiting for mortality to put on immortality. And the body, the flesh and blood, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yes, we shall put on immortality in the body, and that has not been done yet. That's one of the not yet's. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, most of, most of theology today is a, a big long list of not yet's. And just a few, uh, already done on the list. Mostly, the truth is, most everything is already done. And there's only a few not yet's. One of the not yet's is the redemption of the body. We await for the redemption of the body that mortality shall put on immortality. That's one of the not yet's. But most of everything has already been done, which is the good news of the finished work of Christ. Okay, if you believe that God's still working on your soul, your spirit say, but God's working on your soul, your mind, will, emotions, whatever you want to try to define what soul is. If you feel like God's still working on your soul, then let me ask you this. When you die, when your body dies, because as a believer, you've already died. When you are when your body dies and you're absent from the body and present with the Lord, if your soul is not complete, holy, blameless, perfect. Is there any scripture that says God hurriedly finishes what is left to be done before you stand in the presence of white, hot, eternal light and glory? Is there a scripture? Is there a a verse, and there's not. Well, let me ask you this. Does physical death kind of help the process? Does death kind of add to your holiness and physical death add to your righteousness? No. So what I'm telling you, saints, is that if you're not holy, blameless, complete, perfect, sitting right here today in these bodies... You're not going to be when you die, when your body dies. Living by faith is living with the revelation that though I am in this weak earthen vessel, I am a complete and perfect new creation within. We have this treasure in earthen vessels That the excellency of the power is clearly seen to be of God and not of us. Saints, this is awesome. Notice where God cut when he did the circumcision. He did not cut between the spirit and the soul. If that teaching was correct, he would have to cut between spirit and soul because he's about to inhabit the spirit. He cannot join himself to something that's not perfect. He had to have, if that teaching is correct, the cut, the circumcision had to be between spirit and soul so that God could separate himself from the imperfect soul and then fill the spirit. For he was joined to the Lord as one spirit. In fact, God can't even join himself to something that has a past. Do you know that he can't even just fix us? He can't fix us and then join himself to us. He can't just clean us up and join himself to us. He can't. Join himself to anything that has any, any darkness, any evil in its past even. It must be a new creation. 
He raises the dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead. He had to raise us from the dead and call into being that which never existed before. That's the only way holy God could join himself to us. Just like Noah read about the, a people to be created in the future shall praise the Lord. It has to be a new species, a new creation. It has to be something entirely new. That is who you are now. He cut between the physical body and the invisible inner man, soul and spirit, distinguishable but inseparable. We sing it all the time. We sing songs that say, he saved my soul. Well, did he? We sing a song that says he saved my soul, but then we teach that he is working on my soul. That my soul is being saved. That it's not really saved yet, but it's being saved. Well, which one is it? You see, the truth is he saved our soul. He did it. The scripture says, I mean, search the scriptures and see if these things are not true. Do a search of every place in the New Testament where the, the word soul is mentioned. Every place. Not that many, actually. Every place in the scripture, the soul, like, like when Jesus said, come learn of me, take your yoke, my yoke upon you and learn of me. You shall find rest for your souls. Um, Peter talks about how by the blood of Christ, you have purged and cleansed your soul by belief of the truth. Um, James talks about the power of sin in our members. I'm going to get to that. Warring against our soul, meaning they're opposing. The soul is opposed to the sin that's fighting against it. See, everywhere in the scripture, you see that a new creation means a new person. And a new person means a new soul and spirit. You really are a new person. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, when Jesus said you must be born again, we really don't realize how radical that is. I mean, when you were born the first time, you were a person. But you're born again, you're a new person. Um, A new person with some of the same personalities of the old person, but a brand new person. Okay, so God cut away the body of the flesh. And separated the inner man from the outer man. One thing that is commonly taught in the church that is not true today is that the believer has an evil heart. If you believe that you have an evil heart as a Christian. Then you're going to have a very difficult time walking with God. Very difficult. Because number one, it's not true. And number two, you're going to be constantly trying to. Purge or clean your heart. You're going to see yourself as somebody who has a wicked heart, you, which is not how God sees you at all. And you're going to see your journey as a process of becoming more and more holy, more and more righteous, uh, a better person uh, in the eyes of God. It's true. We did have a, an evil heart before Christ. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitfully wicked and who can know it? We were born in Adam. We all had an evil heart in Adam. 
But one of the biggest things God did was he fulfilled the prophecy of Ezekiel. Ezekiel said the day is going to come when the Lord's going to wash us with pure water and he will give us a new heart and a new spirit and he shall live within us and we in him. He has fulfilled the prophecy of Ezekiel and washing us with pure water. What was the washing of water? It was the cross. It was the word of the cross that washes us. It was the death of Jesus that washes us. And in doing that, he was able to raise a new creation, giving us a new heart and put his spirit in that new heart. That has been fulfilled. So seeing this is like is key. It's key. We hear teaching all the time about how, um, you know, Lord, search my heart for any sin. And we think that that's that's good because that's scripture. But saints, it's almost like a lot of teaching we hear today is, is if Jesus didn't even come. I mean, we look at uh, I hear teachers sometimes use Psalm 51 um, because they can't find any other verse in the New Testament. But first John 1 9 to talk about confession of sin. For cleansing, which we know now does not refer to the believer, but that's an unbeliever that needs to be cleansed and b- become a believer. Um, and I'll just say this briefly for those who haven't heard this. First John 1 9 basically says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin and, and uh, cle- uh, forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that verse has been used to apply toward the believer to as a bar of soap to get us clean, cleaned up on a daily basis. Uh, you probably heard the term keeping short accounts with God, that kind of thing. But the eight, verse eight above it and verse 10 below it, it describes the person he's talking about. He says this is a person who says he has no sin, has not sinned. The word is not in them. The truth is not in them. They're deceived and they're calling God a liar. It's a description of an unbeliever. So first John one nine is simply a statement to the unbeliever that if you'll agree with God that you're a sinner and, 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 uh, and that you need a savior, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's all that means. So there's no other verse in the entire New Testament that talks about the believer naming his sins on a daily basis to stay right with God. There's no other verse. That's the only verse that is used. So they have to go to Psalm 51 to find something that talks about this. And Psalm 51 is David that is pleading to God to blot out my sin, blot out my transgressions. And he's he's prophetically looking forward to Christ when Jesus would come. And he says, you know, creating me a new spirit, creating me a new heart, you know, willing spirit, uh, blot out my transgressions, the blood of bulls and goats you don't desire. In other words, God is not into the covering of sins. He's into the taking away of sins. Which is what the new covenant is all about under a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, where sin was taken away, not just covered by the blood of bulls and animals and goats. And so David prophetically was looking to this. And so preachers will use Psalm 51 and put it on the body of Christ pre-Christ. And and try to tell them to go through these steps like David's. No, what has what David yearned for and saw in the spirit you now have. God has created us new as a with a willing spirit. He has put inside us his very divine nature. You've been made a partaker of the divine nature. God is in you now both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It's a new creation. Behold, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have become new and especially the heart. 
He who is a he who is a Jew is a true Jew, a true Jew, Paul says, who is circumcised in the heart and not just in the flesh. Those who are circumcised in the flesh as a Jew was just a picture of the real. Jesus said, my father can raise up these stones to be the sons of Abraham. No, the real sons of Abraham are the people of faith. Those who have been circumcised in the heart where God has totally cut away the body of the flesh and given you a brand new heart. That's the true Israel. That's the true Jew. He who has been circumcised in the heart, a spiritual circumcision of the heart and not of the flesh, Paul says. This is this is incredibly liberating. It is hard to believe. It's hard to believe because we still sin at times. We still have evil thoughts at times. And we think, how can I have an evil thought and have a pure, perfect heart? I'm going to show you today. If you, if, it's so awesome. This, I'm telling you, saints, this one truth. This one truth, if you will ponder this truth, let the Holy Spirit open your eyes to the fact that you have a new heart created by God. And that he sees you as one with a new heart. It will change your life. It's one of the powerful parts of the gospel that is missing in so many churches. Okay, let's see what happened here. Well, let me say this real quick. Okay, what happened to the power of sin, though? Why do we still sin? Okay, we're going to get to this, but... What happened... (laughs) What happened was God, when he cut away the inner man from the outer man... Notice Paul always talked about the inner man and outer man. You know how he said the inner man is being renewed day by day? He's talking about soul and spirit, the invisible inner man. He says the outer man is decaying day by day because it's aging. He says the inner man is is alive because of righteousness, but the body is dead because of sin. See the dichotomy the apostle uses? Apostolic teaching separated inner man, invisible inner man, from physical, visible outer man. That's apostolic teaching. Not this watchman knee, soul, spirit stuff from the Far East. It's inner man, outer man, invisible and visible. The inner man is complete, complete. Okay, so what did God do with the power of sin and why do we still sin and so forth? Okay, this is awesome. This is what God did. God did something only he can do. When you believed on Jesus, he considered the death of Christ Your own death. He considered that your judgment for all sin, for all time, period. And therefore, he was allowed because of your faith. Because of your faith in what Jesus did. He was allowed to then give you himself and join himself to you. So when he cut away the outer man, and this is how I believe it happened. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes into our human spirit. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. So when the Holy Spirit of God joins with the human spirit, it's like the spirit overflows over the soul and spirit of the inner, of the inner man. And 
the way God showed me, it's like a blue flame that totally cuts away the body away from your inner man. If you could see it in the spirit, you're a being of beautiful light that has been cut away from your physical body. That's why, well, let me say this. He then quarantined the power of sin in your mortal body. Notice how the apostles talked about sin in our mortal body. And we just read over those verses like, I don't know what that means. The power of sin is in the flesh. That's why it's called the flesh. Don't walk after the flesh. Because the power of sin is in the physical, mortal body. In your members. It is not you, but sin in your members, Paul says, that trips you up. That's why, saints, when you're separated from your body... You will know all things as you are known immediately. While in the body, there is static interference. There is static interference. We see in part, we prophesy in part, because we're working through brains, physical brains, that are infected. The mind is being renewed by the spirit, but you're having to work. As long as you're in these bodies, you're having to work through the brain. Now, when you go to a funeral, the brain is in the casket. The brain doesn't go to heaven. The brain is infected with the power of sin. The physical body is infected. The mind goes to heaven, the new mind in Christ. You have a mind inside a brain. They're not the same. You have a new mind in Christ. And when you die, the new mind in Christ, which is part of the new person, leaves the body. The brain stays in the casket. You see the difference? God did something so amazing. He cut the real you away from the physical body. That's why he says your sins have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Because he took the real you and translated you from this realm into another realm. You are not even in the same realm as we're as sin in this body. I'm actually in a different dimension in the spirit. To be in the spirit means to be in a different dimension. It means to be in the very life and presence of God who is who is has totally separated me from my body that is here now. That's why you can sin can never touch you because he has cut cut away the inner man who was dead in in sin. Uh, spiritually dead, alienated from the life of God, darkened in our understanding. He has raised us up and given us life and light. And now that person is protected within by the very presence of God, like a blue flame. But it still trips us up sometimes because we're having to work through these brains. And the mind is being renewed to see what is. And that again, like, like I said before, that's why when you leave these bodies, there'll be no interference and you'll know immediately all things as you are known. Death will be like taking off a heavy winter jacket that you had on in the summer. Death will be like taking off the body and there'll be a refreshing freedom and a sense of, I know. I see. I see. God gave Paul this experience while he was living so he could teach this with confidence. 
He said, I knew a man 14 years ago talking about himself. And I couldn't tell if I was in the body or out of the body. God showed me what it's like to be outside the body. He said, and I saw things. I saw it. It's too wonderful to even articulate. You see it? You see, God showed Paul the new creation and gave him the experience. Now, he said, I don't know if I was actually in the body or out of the body. I don't know. He goes, but, but he let me feel what it's like to leave the body at death so he could see and feel what he's been preaching. You see that? And Paul says, the half has not been told. <laughs> the half has not been told. Now, saints, you see why walking by faith is all about walking every day? Believing that God really did it, that you are now fit for heaven right now, that he can't add anything more, that you'll not be any more righteous 50 years from now than you are now. You'll not be any more holy than you are right now. What a rest. We are complete in him. We rest in this reality. He'll not love us any more than he loves us today. I mean, the only difference, one of these not yet's on that list, that short list of not yet's, the only difference is that we'll, now we walk by faith, but there, face to face, we'll see him. We really do just depart. We just depart out of these bodies. Which means you're perfect right now. Which means you have a new heart right now. Which means God is joined to you right now. Now, the funny thing about the law is that the law will stimulate the power of sin in the flesh. That's why it's crucial we get free from law because the law stimulates the power of sin in the flesh. The mystery of iniquity still works in the flesh. What is the mystery of iniquity? Okay, this is the mystery of iniquity. In the, it began in the garden. Actually, it began in the heavens. It began in the heavens. When Satan, when Lucifer, one of the archangels, said, I will be like the Most High. I will. He basically was saying, I don't need God. I will be like him and I don't need him. The mystery of iniquity is when that was found in Lucifer, the fallen angel, then appeared on earth to infect the human race that God created. God, of course, knew all this was going to happen. He prepared for it. The lamb has been slain since the foundation of the world. So God didn't get caught surprised. All of this was geared to show the, re the revelation of God's awesome grace. Angels long to look into what you have. Because God didn't save or redeem angels. He redeems the sons of Abraham. They don't understand it. And Lucifer hates it. Because God gave to you what he wanted. So what happened was God, I mean, Lucifer tricked Adam and Eve into eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a it was a copy of the tree of life. It was a substitute for the tree of life. Eve ate of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this was the lie that was told to Eve before she ate it. The, the lie was. You can be like God. 
if you eat this tree, eat of this tree, because you'll be you'll know good and evil like God. You can be like him. He was saying to her, you don't need God to be like God. You don't need God to be like God. Some people preach that the sin in the garden was they wanted to be like God. No, God created them in his own image. David said, I will I will rejoice when I awake with thy, in thy likeness. God wants us to be like him. The sin was, the deception was, you can be like him without him. That's the devil's deception. You see it? You can be like him without him. If you just knew right from wrong, if you just knew good from evil, you could pull this off. That's why. That's how he's doing it. He knows something you don't know. It's all about knowledge. You see it? Now, the law is the embodiment of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The law, through the law, is the knowledge of evil. Through the law is the knowledge of sin and good. So what God did to Israel, he made a covenant with them and he brought out of them what was already in them. The tree was already in them. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was already in them. He brought that out in, on tablets of stone. The scripture says in Romans 2 that the law is written on all our hearts. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all, we all have it. Gentile Jew, we all have it in our hearts. You tell a little baby, that's not fair, or don't take that toy, or whatever, or whatever. They know it's wrong. Where does that come from? Where do children know they have some measure of right and wrong already in them? It's the law. It's from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what God did was he magnified, he magnified sin. He magnified what was already in their heart. And the sin, again, was you can do this if you get the law, learn the law. You can be like God. You can be righteous. You can be good. You can be righteous. Here's the law. Here's the knowledge. Good and evil. He magnified it for the Jewish people, a special people he pulled aside so that he could reveal this truth of what was really wrong with man and then provide the answer for all men as the Messiah would come through Israel. Okay, so the law was given to make sin exceedingly sinful, the scripture says. The law was given to magnify sin, the scripture says. Not to, not to stop sin. Paul says the law was given to make sin worse and make it increase. Why increase? Because in bread in every human being is a lie. It is the lie of sin. Sin's lie is that if I knew what to do, I could do it. Give me the rules and I'll keep it. I don't need God. See? So the law was given, Paul said, to magnify sin, to increase sin, so man would come to the end of himself and say, I cannot do it. That every mouth might be shut. To pre- prepare the way for the secret, the mystery of Christ himself, who would take us through death and resurrection, erasing forever the Adamic nature and the sin power that worked against us, the law of sin and death, and, and creating us a new heart and make us a partaker of the divine nature. Now, the divine nature can be described like this. We see it in Jesus. Jesus came on the scene and he said, apart from the Father, I can do nothing. You see the difference? So, the power of flesh, the power of sin, the mystery of iniquity that he has saved us from, that st- it's still in your body, still wars against you at t- from time to time, thinking we can do this on our own. 
God has replaced it with his own nature. The nature of the son who cries out, Abba, Father, I live by my father. My father's works are the works you see. The words I speak are not my words, but the words of my father. You now have that divine nature in you. You have the nature of Christ that you will you will default as a new creation. You will default to a life of dependence on God if you get the law out of your way. You are like a helium balloon with ropes. And if you just cut the ropes, you will automatically lift. You are made. You are made. You have you have the ascended life in you. You cut the ropes and the life will ascend. You don't have to make it work. You don't have to work it up. You don't have to try to make it happen. It will ascend. It will go to Him. Yes. Woo. This, this is what you're, you're made. We are made this way. Now, you see, that's why it's so, it's so counterintuitive to say, um, we gotta be get, we gotta get free from the law because we think like a natural man that we need accountability. We need to, uh, you know, know right from wrong and so forth. Um, you know, when, when the Israel was going into the promised land, God said, you know, that the group that didn't believe him, 10, 10 didn't believe and two did believe. Joshua and Caleb believed, but he had, they had to wander for 40 years and he brought them into the promised land eventually and there's an awesome verse that says this. It says that the group, the generation that didn't believe God could bring him into the promised land. He said, you said that your young children who had no knowledge, who have no knowledge of good or evil would be prey. P-R-E-Y will be prey or be killed in the, in the promised land. So you you didn't trust me to bring you in there. You said that your children and he used the phrase your children who have no knowledge of good or evil. You said would die. You said, you know, this wouldn't work because the, the, the children would die. God says those that you said wouldn't make it in there. The children who have no knowledge of good and evil. I will bring them in and you will see it. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? How many times have I heard people tell me, yeah, I like your message of grace. It's awesome, but it it won't work. Uh, You know, you got to have some knowledge of good and evil. You'll get devoured in that land with the giants. It, It won't work. That's what they say. You know why? Because they're blind. Because you know why? Because the ten spies saw themselves through the eyes of the giants. And they said, they see us as grasshoppers. We can't do this. But Joshua and Caleb saw themselves through the eyes of God, sons and daughters and warriors of God. And Joshua and Caleb, seeing themselves through the eyes of God, said, what? Those giants are bread for us. They're bread for us. What are you, what are you guys seeing? You, you ten leaders of the ten tribes, what are you seeing? We're seeing us as, we're like grasshoppers before those giants. We're seeing them through the eyes of the giants. We see this through the eyes of God. It's amazing. It's amazing. So law stimulates sin because law tells you 
The law is not a faith. The scripture says law is not a faith. I'm writing a book right now that I've been writing for 20 years. <laughs> and I pray and I hope that I finally get it done. But I'll tell you this. I remember the day I sat at my computer 20 years ago. And the first line I wrote, which that line is now buried in the book. You know, there's lines above it, below it. But it's in the book. The first line that the Spirit said right was this. The law is not a faith. Faith is really important to God. Really. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And the law is not a faith. But grace... How did Paul say it? He said, but now there is faith, which is according to grace. According to grace. See, faith is according to grace. Faith is, is consistent with grace, not the law. So, see what I'm saying? It's very important to see that faith is not a work. Don't let people talk you into, especially the Calvinists. They try to talk you into faith, making faith a work. That, no, no, you can't. You, faith is a work. God has to give you faith. God has to believe through you. You can't believe for yourself. And God chooses certain people to, to give faith to, and he withholds faith from other people. That's, that's the lie of Calvinism. No. Anybody can be saved. Anybody can believe. And you can believe as a dead person. Jesus said, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Why can a dead person hear? How can a dead spiritually, a spiritually dead person hear? Because the light is inherent in the Word. In thy light we shall see light. The Word of God carries its own power. The Word of the Gospel carries its own power into the darkened heart and brings light and illumination. And the man can believe or not believe. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. It's coming into the darkness of your heart. If you see it, believe it. I'm passing in front of you now, Jesus said, while you sit, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you might become the children of the light. You see it? It's awesome. I'm getting shooken up. I tell you, this is for everybody. He died for all men. That's why he said, when you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost in Egypt, take a hyssop branch, because a hyssop branch was the most common weed in Egypt. Wasn't hard to find a hyssop branch there everywhere. Take the hyssop branch that's everywhere because everybody has the ability to believe. It's awesome. And that door is awesome too. The reason why he put it on the door is because he was taking them to another reality. Also, remember this, saints. It's awesome. That's why he said the door. It, did, it, it spoke of the household, yes, the, the household, but it was more a picture of we're going, we're going someplace. We're going through a door. We're going through a Red Sea. We're going through the Jordan. We're going to another land. I have prepared a land for you full of milk and honey, a picture of Christ. Look at the two rivers, the two parting of the seas, as a picture of one event. This is key. The parting of the Red Sea is a picture of Jesus dying for us for our sins. The parting of the Jordan is a picture of you dying with Christ to pass into the other realm. He said, take 12 stones, which, which, which symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. 
put 12 stones at the bottom of the Jordan and 12 stones on the banks of the new land. This was a picture of the entire body of believers going through Christ's death and resurrection. You see, it was the blood on the doorpost that opened the way that judgment would pass over. And they celebrated Passover, by the way, like a July 4th celebration. For in this day, a nation is born. Independence Day. Passover was a celebration. And the Lord's the Lord's Supper should be a celebration because that's the real Passover. Judgment has passed you over. We celebrate the bread and the wine in celebration that He took away our sin. We remember Him, not our sins. And so... When we pass through the Red Sea, picture of Israel passing the Red Sea because of the blood of the Lamb, that was the, the, the work of Christ in, in taking our sins away. But notice, when, you, when they crossed the Jordan, it was the tabernacle. It was the, the risen Christ coming out and parting that, that Jordan to take them into the land. It was the, it was the throne of God. It was the mercy seat. It was the living, ascended high priest coming out of the Jordan. The, the priest touched the water and it parted. And the scripture says that the river of Jordan parted all the way back to the city called Adam. Adam. God is saying that His work is for all men, for all time. This work Took care of every man all the way back to Adam. Can it be any more clearer? A city named Adam is where the water backed up to. And they walked into a new land filled with milk and honey. And those 12 stones, the scripture says, this is Joshua chapter 4. If you want to read it one day, Joshua chapter 4, the 12 stones are still at the bottom of the Jordan to this day, the scripture says, because your death was final. And the 12 stones on the banks in the new land is a picture of the new man, the new creation who lives in another place. Now, there are no giants in heaven. This is not a picture of going to heaven. As, as Noel said, we, we hear people singing, one day we're going to cross that Jordan and go into the promised land. No, there are no giants to fight in heaven. But there's land to be possessed now. Land he has given us, our inheritance. It is this other realm. It is this other reality. We set our foot on it. We possess it. We walk in it. We believe it. We see it. And we possess it. We experience it. We experience it. And we see Jericho seven times. The number of rest. On the seventh day, God rested. He said, you're not going to fight in this battle. This is, I will give you the land. Seven times. And the seventh time, they went seven times around on the seventh time. So in God telling us, it's all about rest. Entering to my rest. And the walls fell down. And they possessed the land. But you know what God said? He gave them the land. Beautiful, awesome land. But He said, I'm going to leave a few of the enemies in the land. That you might not forget me. We still have the flesh. We still have the power of sin. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? To remind us, apart from Him, we can do nothing. We have this treasure in, this, this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellency of the power that you see manifested in these bodies is clearly seen to be of God and not of us. 
as we walk by the by the spirit, the scripture says the spirit will put to death the deeds of the body. Okay, real quick, let's read just briefly. I know we're we'll wrap this up. Let me say this real quick, <laughs> and we'll re- definitely we'll definitely read it after this. You know, people, people, some, some people teach that you were married to the law from Romans 7, that you were married to the law and that, you know, the analogy of the, one of the spouses dies and so you're free from the law and so you can be married to another. Saints, that's not what Romans 7 is teaching. You're not married to the law. And we'll see it in, t- in a few seconds here. You're not married to the law. You're married to the flesh. As an unbeliever. As an unbeliever, you were married. I was married to the race of Adam. Marry just means joined. He's using an analogy of marriage, but it just means joined. We were joined to the flesh. We were joined to the race of Adam. Now, the definition of the old man is this. It's a dead inner man who's spiritually dead, spiritually dead, joined to a body that's infected with the power of sin. That's an old man. It's a dead spiritual inner man who's alienated from the life of God, darkened in their understanding, joined to a, a, a physical body that's infected with, this, with the power of sin. And therefore, sin has its way with that person because there's no life pushing back. There's, no, there's a dead spirit. And so the power of sin that's in the mortal body affects our very being. And so we're spiritually dead. What God did was through the body of Christ, the scripture says through the body of Christ, our husband, so to speak, our husband, the flesh, this old man, this flesh died through the body of Christ because Romans eight says he made him to be sin that he might destroy sin in the body. Okay, so what God did on the cross was he judged us on the cross. The, remember, the scripture says the, the crucifixion of Christ was our circumcision so that he could cut away our old husband, which is the flesh, which is of the Adamic race, and raise the inner man from the dead and join us to the same Christ who is now raised from the dead, a new husband. See, our old husband was really Adam. Our new husband is the last Adam. You see it? Now, the reason why you're free from the law because of this is because the old Adam is under the jurisdiction of the law. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. The only way to to escape the jurisdiction of the law is a person dies. Like he says, you know, you have a married couple. The woman can't remarry unless the husband dies. And if the husband dies, uh, the, the law says, okay, you know, there's no law against remarrying. And that's what he was using as an analogy. See? So, he's, so the jurisdiction of the law is what you escaped through death, but you weren't married to the law. The law never dies. The law never dies. The law is going to be here till the end of the world. Not one jot, one tittle shall be removed from the law because it'll be here forever. The only way to escape it is through Christ. And there's no law in heaven, only life. And so what happened in Romans 7 is that God actually joined us, the new man, to the risen Christ. And so now... Whereas the law gave us, gave the power to sin, now the life of Christ brings forth fruit through his life. So now let's read it real quick. 
Okay, Romans chapter 7. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. He's going to use a uh, part of the Jewish law as an example. That the law has juris- jurisdiction over a person as long as, long as he lives. See? As long as he lives, the law has jurisdiction. That's the key. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. See, in the, in the example Paul is giving, this is not a couple married to the law. He's talking about a couple, in this analogy, who, as long as they're alive, they're under the jurisdiction of the law. Okay? Look at this, verse 2. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. See, they're not talking about being married to the law. They're bound to the husband because they're under the jurisdiction of the law. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. You see that? The marriage was between a woman and a man, a husband and a wife, under the jurisdiction of the law. She's released from that jurisdiction of the law when her husband dies. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And this is, of course, this was just part of Jewish law he was using as an example. Basically, what he's saying is that if you try to join yourself to Christ and you haven't gone through or if you've tried to join yourself to God and you haven't gone through Christ, you're committing spiritual adultery. Because you haven't passed through the cross. If you try to be a good person and go to heaven without going through the cross, then it's, it, it doesn't work. You're still under the jurisdiction of the law. Okay. Verse 4. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. See, he became like the fallen Adam. He became the entire race of Adam that we were joined to. So through the body of Christ on the cross, we were released to the law. We died to the law that you might be joined to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. See, we're the, the resurrection now enables us to be joined to the, ris, the risen Christ, the new inner man joined to him. Look at verse five. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which are aroused by the law. See, there it is. The law arouses sinful passions when we were in the flesh. We're at work in the members of our body. There it is in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound through the body of Christ so that we now serve God in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Isn't that awesome? So what Paul is saying here is that we actually, through the body of Christ, have been moved out from under the jurisdiction of the law. And now we are joined to the risen Christ. But see, we still have the body. We're no longer in the flesh, but we were in the body. It's very important to understand that you're no longer in the flesh, meaning joined to the flesh, but you are still in the body. Scripture says we are are either in the spirit or in the flesh. Some of the bad teaching out there says that you can be a Christian and be in the flesh and in the spirit, back and forth in the flesh and the spirit. No, you're in the spirit now, joined to Christ, but you're still in the body. So the power of sin in the body sometimes causes us to stumble and we walk after the flesh. But that's not who we really are. And so we must be free from law because it still stimulates, even, even for a believer, law will stimulate the flesh because it's not a faith. The river of life flows through faith. He who believes on me shall flow rivers of living water. So when you leave the place of faith and dependence on God and this revelation of who you are with a new heart, a new creation, with the love of the Father, 
This new reality you've been brought into when you lose sight of that. As Peter says, some believers were becoming nearsighted and even blind to the reality they forgot that they were once purged from their sins. When, when we don't lose sight of that, then the Spirit will well up in us and put to death the deeds of the body. It's a mystery. God's Spirit will short-circuit the power of sin that's in the body. It's a mystery that we cannot explain. He just gave the apostle enough so we could understand how some of this works. But it's really all by faith. Because it's not detailed, because it's beyond our comprehension. That's why he's called the Wonderful Counselor. His counsel is wonderful. It's full of wonder. That's why they kept saying, how can these things be? How can these things be? Great is the mystery of your godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He took away our sin by his death. He was vindicated by the power of the Spirit in resurrection. He was seen by the messengers. He was proclaimed on in the world. He was believed upon. He was taken up into glory. Great is the mystery of your godliness. Great is the mystery of your godliness. There are people that teach a godliness, a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Their religion teaches a form of godliness, but they deny the power. Any man... Any woman who teaches that a Christian does not have a new heart is denying the power of God. Jesus said, you do greatly err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. Any man, any woman, by the sound of my voice, who is teaching now the body of Christ that a believer has an evil heart is denying the power of God. You do greatly err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. He has raised up a new creation, a new heart, a new being. But he kept it within these weak earthen vessels that we would live completely dependent on him, which is what your nature is all about anyway. You default to a dependence on your father. You default to it automatically. When all the trappings are released, you just rise to him in dependence on him. I just want to say a few words about something we mentioned yesterday. I said this statement. I said that we make we make too much of sin as believers in the church. We make. We make we get sin too much power in the way we respond to it. When a believer sins in the and we all sin, we all have the body of flesh. We all have to learn to walk by the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But guess what? You know what? We're all also righteous. There's no one more righteous than the other because each one has the righteousness of God. This is genius. This is genius. What God did. There's no comparison, comparing one with another. Paul says, what are you doing? We're equally as holy as the next because our holiness is him. And we all have the flesh. We all have things we're working through, but we make way too much of we give sin way too much power. This is what infuriated the Pharisees. Here's a woman caught in the very act of adultery. In the very act of adultery. And all he says to them, to her 
after he turns his, his eyes to the accusers and says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And I said this the other day, and I want to say it again, because I think it's so important that the reason why I believe Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground is because he did not want to meet her eyes in the context of condemnation. So he looked at the ground and was just doodling, really. I don't think he was writing anything. People say he was writing the Ten Commandments. No, I don't think so. I think he was just waiting for them to make a decision because he stood up and looked at them and not her and said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he went back down and, and wrote on the ground some more. And one by one, they left, beginning with the oldest, because the oldest knew they had a lot of sin. The young ones, the young bucks were like, oh, come on, man, I thought we we're going to have a stoning today. And, and finally, when all the old ones left, the young ones, you know, OK, I guess. Yeah. And then Jesus, then when everybody left, he looked at her for the first time and he said, woman, where are your accusers? And then she said, there there are none, Lord. And he said, and he's the only one that could throw a stone without sin. And he looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wait a minute. You can't just let her off that easy. Wait, 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 wait. There's got to be some kind of accountability here. There's got to be some probation here. There's got to be some. We've got to assign her to an accountability group and make sure this doesn't happen again. I mean, I mean, she has wrecked families by this act of adultery. She has hurt people. You can't take sin lightly. Sin hurts people. They hurt families and they, they devastate. Sin devastates families. No, you can't let this go. Woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus' response to sin infuriated the Pharisees. Peter said one day, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? He's driving me crazy. Seven times? I'll maybe do it seven times. Jesus said, Peter. Seven times 70, Peter. But don't you care that he's doing this? Why do you say 490 times I have to forgive? I'm telling you, saints, we're not seeing this right. We're not seeing this right. We're, putting, we're giving sin way too much power. We claim to understand grace. We claim to be free from the law, but the law was given to make sin exceedingly sinful. And grace does just the opposite. It takes the power away from sin. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. We still don't get it. It's not by holding people accountable that will change their life. It is not by condemnation that will change their life. The scripture says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. We still don't get it in fullness like he wants us to get it. He walked the earth. Yes, sin is evil. Sin cost the life of the son of God. But that's the point. No other payment need be made. 
He's the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. And yes, it was it separated man from God. And yes, it was serious, so serious that it took the death of the Son of God to remove it. But He who knew what He was going to do moved among men, forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and releasing and releasing and releasing so much that John the Baptist said, Are you really the one? Or should we look for another? You're forgiving the world! The whole world is going after Him! We don't get it yet, saints. I'm serious. We don't get it yet. Good example right here. I know of a pastor in Orlando who fell into this, into the sin, uh, with a, her secretary and with his, you know, adultery and all this. And he realized that this was flesh and sin and not of Christ. He changed his mind about it. He repented. He told his wife about it. They were healing together. Nobody else knew about this except for maybe one or two close friends. And he still he founded this church. He pastored this church. And then the uh, the person that was involved in this sin wanted to get him back, wanted to expose him. And so she came and exposed him to hurt him and to kill the church. And these elders let her do that. Instead of saying, we already know, or if we didn't know, they didn't know, that's right, they didn't know. They should have gone to him, and he could have talked to them, and his wife could have talked to him and said, yes, this happened, but my, 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 father, my husband already repented and changed his mind, and we are working through this, and we have some close friends that are helping us. They should have loved that pastor. Don't you believe in repentance? Don't you believe in grace? Don't you believe, like Paul said to the brother who was in sin, but he repented, he says, embrace that brother, lest he be overcome with condemnation. There's no probation. What probation? How is that going to help anything? Probation? Jesus denied Jesus. Paul denied Jesus. He denied even knew him and cursed and didn't want to be involved, you know, because he was afraid. Jesus appears on the beach cooking breakfast for Peter after the resurrection. Says, Peter, you will be my spokesman on Pentecost. What about probation? What probation? I'm telling you, saints, we don't see this. We don't see how Jesus responded. And the enemy, we're, the enemy's laughing at us. He just takes out the top guy. Takes out the top guy, man. He knows it's all going to fall like dominoes. What if we just threw that back in his face and said, yeah, he made a mistake. We all make mistakes. But, I, but where sin abounds, he didn't say also, by the way, where there's some sin, where there's a little sin, grace is better. No, he says where sin abounds. Think about the worst possible scenario where sin abounds. Think of the worst possible scenario. How about adultery and then murder to cover up your adultery? That's David, a man after God's own heart, where sin abounds. Grace does much more abound. It is the shield of faith that would destroy every fiery dart of the wicked one. And yes, we all make mistakes, especially our leaders. Our leaders are targets. They're targets. And we fall right into the trap every time, one after another. Instead of facing the enemy and saying, yeah, he made a mistake. He'll be a better preacher than ever. He'll understand grace more than ever. That's what David said. After his transgression, he says, now I can really show transgressors your ways. I'm a better man for having gone through that. Which pastor would you rather have? The prodigal son that came back? Who really knows the love of his father 
or the, or the guy who never did anything wrong in his own mind and did everything right and was mad at his father showing mercy to his, to his brother. Which pastor would you like to have? I want the prodigal son because he knows the heart of the father. The other brother didn't even know his dad. He said, what do you mean? You can have a party anytime you want to have a party. Why are you living like a slave? My God. You're-